This morning, we're going to go over a little bit of David's life. We, in January, on January 12th, we're starting a new series on the Psalms, which you know, Deirdre, George, and I are really excited about. And it really, and thank you, Walter, for sharing you know, your story too. The Psalms plays a big role in our story and in our suffering and in our joy and our hope. And so we felt that it'd be, it'd be helpful for us in preparation for the Psalms as we prepare ourselves as a church to go through that together and to think about this, to gain a greater appreciation for them and for the context of them, that it'd be helpful to go through the figure of David and his life that led. Now, David is a really well-known figure. I mean, almost anybody in our culture has heard of King David of Israel. There's different opinions about him, different stories of him. But just, I mean, the, the artwork alone, if you, you know, Google David, you're going to see a lot of statues and a lot of things maybe you didn't want to see, but you'll see, you're going to see a lot of stuff about David. David is incredibly well known. It's one of those children's stories, right, that we all grow up learning about King David, the story of David and Goliath is one of those stories that gets ingrained in kids' heads, and so you feel very familiar with the figure of David uh, because he's so, so well known. He's one of the greatest, if not the greatest king of Israel, at least from a military standpoint. He's a man after God's own heart, right, is that phrase that's often referred to David. He's the recipient of the promise of a child, just like Abraham. There's just two figures in the Old Testament that get this direct promise from the Lord. Abraham is promised a child, like the promised child is going to come through you, Abraham. I choose you and your descendants. And now to David. I choose you, David, this promise. He plays a huge, a huge role through Scripture and obviously just in our culture and our lives. And then when it comes to the Psalms, he's the, the, the greatest author of the Psalms. He didn't write all of the Psalms, but he wrote almost half of the Psalms, or just King David. But he's a complicated figure. And sometimes our familiarity with him hurts our understanding of the depth of him and of his character and the story behind him and, and really what he goes through of his hopes, his fears, and his sin. Uh, Robert Alter, he's a professor of Hebrew at University of California. He writes in his book on, on David and on this period, the, the, the former prophets, he calls this portrayal of David and Samuel the first full-length portrait of a Machiavellian prince in Western literature. In the front. Whoa, hold on, this is David you're talking about. How are you calling him a Machiavellian prince? If you're not familiar with Machiavelli, right, this is that way in which to get power through whatever means possible. But you do, as you look at him, Alter describes how David is constantly prepared to do almost anything to survive at every moment in his life. Who is this man that will play such an important figure in our own redemption as the line of, of Jesus and through Scripture? How is he at his highest and at his lowest? Where is his source of hope? This week, we're going to look at that rise of David and his humbling, and we'll, next week, we'll look at the source of his hope throughout all of these things. But if you're not familiar with the story of David, I really would encourage you, it's just a ton of text to cover, but you know, through these weeks, Read through the narratives in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, which really tell us the story of David. It was really fun to be able to do that myself here these last couple of weeks after talking with George and Deirdre and they decided for me David would be a good one to do. All right, fine, I'll do David. I wanted to do Esther, but that's fine. David fits better. Um, and 
I was rereading those stories, and I was just struck by how I had assumed so much of David's life. But then you kind of read the stories again, and you're like, whoa, my understanding of these was through the lens of a 10-year-old or 12-year-old in Sunday school, and not as an adult reading adult literature written for adults, not for children. And it, it, he's a very complex figure. The very opening scene of David's life, and if you know this story, right, is him being anointed as a child to be the king of Israel. which is a really amazing picture. Because to understand David and his rise, we also have to understand where they're at as a people. They're anointing a king. To us, that doesn't sound too crazy. You know, cultures anoint kings. But Israel was not supposed to be anointing kings. They weren't supposed to have a king. They had always been promised. From Genesis 3 on, they were promised a savior. A deliverer would come this child who would come to undo sin and death, who would save the people, who would redeem them and bring them into a place, into a land, and rule over them with peace. I mean, there's always been this hope of a promised child and of a promised king. You do find that reference that out of the line of Judah is going to come eventually this king, this child, the one who's going to give peace to them. As you're reading Samuel, and I encourage you to read it, the prophet Samuel comes, And you feel bad for Samuel. He's the chosen prophet to the people. He's supposed to be their leader. And as he's dying and his sons don't look like good leaders themselves, the people say, you know what, Samuel, this has been a great run, but we don't really want you anymore. In fact, we want a king. All the other nations have kings. Samuel, pick a king for us. Give us a king. And so he does. He picks Saul if you know that story. He picks Saul to be their king, and he turns out to be a very unfit king for the people. And God takes the blessings away from Saul, and Samuel is in despair. And he recognizes the mistake he had made, and God says, right, how long are you going to despair, Samuel? Here, I'll tell you what I'm going to do for you. Let's find another king. Come to this family, this new family, bring them together. And again, he brings this new family, this line of Jesse and all of his sons, And Samuel, again, shows bad judgment, thinks this must be the king that you want for the people of Israel, and it's not. And eventually, it's this small boy, the youngest of them, David. And if you can imagine what this would do to David, his whole life, knowing he is the anointed king of Israel, but he's not the king of Israel. He was anointed, but there is a king. He's just a shepherd, but he's the king of Israel, (laughs) The issues, right, that you would grow up with, (laughs) knowing that that was who you are, that you were chosen by God to be the king of these people that you're watching, but having no place or way in which to do it. He works his way into the service of the king. He enters into serving Saul through his music, and then you have that huge scene with Goliath. And at first glance, we all kind of know the story of Goliath, But as you read it closely and you read that narrative, you do see David's life and you see his motivations are a little bit mixed throughout all of that. He's very clear to ask what are the rewards for killing Goliath before he agrees to do it. He wants to know what kind of public accolades he will get, what kind of that the daughter of the king is going to be his prize for doing this. And, but he seems to also want to honor the Lord in doing this. He likes, he wants to show up his brothers in doing this. 
right in this opening scene of his life, then of you know, his big public moment, he's, he comes across very conflicted, or at least complicated, that there's a mix of emotions and feelings for him and desires of why he's going after this. After he kills Goliath, he has continued success that grows and grows, and then that growing jealousy of Saul. He enters into two different arranged marriages with Saul to try to, you know, again, Saul wants David to be close. David wants to be close. I mean, David knows he's going to be the king. It'd probably be good to marry into the family line of the king. The first arranged marriage falls through. Saul actually gives her to somebody else. And then there's this Michal, this daughter of Saul who actually loves David, it says. And she's one of the tragic figures to the story really being manipulated and used by both Saul and by David. And it's through that time that Saul begins to truly see David as a threat and starts to try to kill him. David goes off into exile. He really uses Mikkel and Jonathan, the two people in the narratives that really love him the most. He really uses their help a lot to be able to escape. He flees from them, and he flees to the enemies. He flees to the Philistines. And again, if you've been reading Scripture been going through Judges, the Philistines is not the place you should run to for, for, I mean, go to Egypt. That's where everybody goes if they're looking for rest, if you're trying to, you know, that's where you should run. But he goes to the Philistines, which were the enemies of the people of Israel. Why would you flee to the enemies? He acts like a madman in the presence of the king so as to not appear a threat. Again, that kind of like Alter saying, he seems willing to do anything it takes to survive. Whatever it means, I'll do it. You want me to act the fool? I'll act the fool. Do you want me to not you know, proclaim that I'm an Israelite? Fine, I'll do that. Whatever I need to do here, I'll do it. And he does. He continues to elude Saul. While on the lamb in Philistia, he takes two more wives for himself. Um, eventually, he even decides to join the Philistines. It's not enough for him just to be amongst the Philistines. He actually becomes a vassal of the Philistines, of one of the kings. He serves one of the kings there, and he goes and he pillages whole towns. It talks about this, this, his band of men and the whole kind of town that he ends up kind of establishing for himself. And they go and they raid villages, killing men, women, and children, everyone in the town, so that the word won't spread that David is doing these things. And they, take, they bring the pillage back for them and things like that. And like, Whoa, this is dark even rides out to war with the Philistines against Israel. When Philistine, the Philistines are about to go wage war against Saul, he rides out with his men to fight with them against Saul. But the Philistines say, wait, do we really want him with us? The, the madman who was, you know, like, what if, what if he switches sides? I mean, he's clearly mentally deranged. Do we, really want, do we really trust him to fight for us? If we get there, he may switch sides and end up fighting for the Israelites, and so they reject him and send him home. And then the Philistines ride off to wage war. Saul and his sons die, and David returns. And when he comes back, he starts off as just the king of Judah, which is his tribe, and then a civil war erupts between the descendants of Saul with Israel and Judah with David eventually growing stronger and stronger and stronger. Eventually, David's rival is killed, but not by David's hand, which is a common occurrence throughout David's life. This is a little suspicious, right? If you are looking for that Machiavellian types of narratives, 
Like he never ends up killing any of his rivals, but somehow they always end up dead. And he never takes the blame for any of it and just gets to walk right in and, you know, a little suspicious. But his rival dies. He is anointed king of all of Israel. He establishes a capital city. He builds a palace for the first time for Israel. And he's there at his highest. He has all of the power. He is the true and rightful king of Israel and has established them. And then once in power, he abuses it with that horrific story of Bathsheba and Uriah, which again, most of us are familiar with. Where he sees a young woman, desires her, wants her, orchestrates a whole plot and plan to have her, has her, and then orchestrates this whole plot and plan to cover it up, and then he can't, and then he orchestrates the murder of, his, of her husband as sending him off into battle. I mean, the, just the wasting of his own troops in battle to cover up his own sin. Many people die to cover this up. I mean, just the iniquity on his hands with these things. He's in a position of power, and he uses it for his own selfish gain. He may be the anointed king of Israel, but he's certainly not the king that the people were hoping for. The king who would rule over them and protect them. The king who would rule with justice, who would be selfless, who would lift up the people, who would worship God and bring them towards worshiping God. Rather, David turns into the king that they were warned about. Samuel warned the people when they started asking for kings. He says, the kings are not going to be what you think they are. They are not going to bring you the peace and prosperity that you think the kings will bring you. Rather, they will only rule over you and they will take from you. They will take your daughters and your sons. They will tax you heavily. They will lead you into war and they will not bring you peace. Again, we start to see why Robert Alter calls this portrayal of David the first full-length portrait of a Machiavellian prince. He's constantly prepared to do anything to get what he wants or at least to what's been promised to him from a young child. He knew he was to be the king, and he's going to make sure he gets there. Every public statement he makes in the text, that's one of the things with Hebrew narrative, which is so fun. I love Hebrew narrative because it just gives you these, the words of the characters, and you're always supposed to be just listening to their words. And the, the, the narrator doesn't tell you a lot of their intentions. So you're supposed to just read their words. What do they say? Every statement of David is self-serving. It glorifies God to a certain extent in Israel, but it also serves him. Every statement he makes publicly could be a politically self-serving statement if you're inclined to view it that way. Until 2 Samuel 12. And this passage that we read today, I had read, which was an odd passage, is the first time that David makes a public statement that can't possibly be a political statement as well, for his own benefit. He's confronted by the prophet Nathan before this in chapter 12, called out in his sin, which is a gift that he gets called out in his hubris and his selfishness and his sin. And he comes face to face with the fullness and the effects, the reality that his sin has wrought for him and with the loss of this child, where he finally just says, can I bring him back? 
I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. It's his first honest statement. He's at the highest point of his life, and he experiences the crushing effects of how he rose to power. And he's finally honest. From here, things go downhill for David politically, if you know the rest of the narrative and the story, and we'll look at that a bit next week as well. Personally, politically, he starts to lose control of the kingdom that he made. His family runs crazy around him with his sons, uh, killing each other, raping their sisters, and trying to kill him and take the throne. And he seems clueless and out of touch in the castle, eventually getting it seems unclear as to who is going to be the successor, and he gets talked into giving the, to, to Solomon from Bathsheba, and eventually dies this helpless man alone in his bed. David is a very messy hero. I mean, he's a hero. He's a hero of the faith. He's a hero of Israel. He's a hero of Christians. He's, he's our hero, but he's a messy one. And as a culture we have a very hard time with heroes. It seems at times we have a love for heroes, and we also have an equal desire sometimes of a a hatred towards our heroes. It seems we want our heroes to be elevated and to be perfect and to be clean. We get very defensive when any of our cultural heroes or our historical heroes get criticized. We don't want that, and we want to overlook those things. Or, We're really eager to tear down heroes. Show me your clean hero, and I'll show you his sins, and let's tear him down. Let's take him down a level. Or we also like our villains to get redeemed. Who doesn't love a good movie like that, where the villain gets redeemed at the end? Or where we like our heroes to fall. We project, and this is just what people do. It's in our DNA. We project our hope on our history We project our hopes on our culture. We project our hope in our stories and in the things that we give. Sound issue? Oh, thank you. Yeah. Computer almost shut off. Did you find the plug? (laughs) All right. I'll I'll let Jake find it. He'll find the plug. But it's what we do. If we just look at our cultural artifacts, and we've been looking at a lot of cultural artifacts this last couple of weeks here over Christmas break with Disney Plus right now, um, right? We've been watching a lot of Star Wars and a lot of Marvel. We love heroes. You know, every, it's just what humanity has done, though. We need to look back to the ancients and every culture, every people. They, we love to write stories of heroes. We love to have a hero and we love to have a villain. And it helps us. It helps us to make sense of our lives. It helps us to make sense of reality. We're always looking for a reason why things aren't the way that they should be. And we're always looking for hope for how things could be made right and put right again. So we're always looking for a villain. And we're always looking for a savior. We see things wrong in our lives. We see things wrong in our world. And then we look for those things to explain it and to provide us with some sort of hope. Right? In our heart, and, and what's so deceptive about it is we do this subconsciously, unconsciously. It's not like we purposely decide, you know what, I think I'm going to pick a hero today or look for a savior that's going to give me some hope. 
But rather, but we do have all of this subconscious going on and these questions and these thoughts of, if only this wasn't here in my life right now, things would be better. If only I had this. If only this would happen, things would be right with the world, right with me, right with my family. If only this could just stay the same. If only nothing would, would ever affect this, then oh, things would finally be right. If only everyone would just, you know, then, boy, would we finally have a city where we all get, you know, if only everyone could just, we do all the, we have these if-onlys all the time in our hearts, in our minds, that we pursue. Things that we blame for the circumstances that we're in and things that we hold on to as hope for fixing it and to give us hope, peace, life, glory. It's really everywhere around us. It's really what explains the strong desires and pulls towards these places that give us these clear heroes and villains. I, mean, I think of religion and politics, sports. To me, they're all kind of the same. You know, like, you know if you look at like college football, that's a religion. Um, you know, you look at politics, that's a religion. You know, like, th- there's so much of it within th- all of those spheres because it gives you a very clear right and wrong, the good team, the bad team, the right side, the wrong side, the right behavior, the wrong behavior. Here's what you should do. Here's what you shouldn't do. And, and that's helpful. <laughs> it feels good. <laughs> it feels good to have that. It feels good. And then when your side wins, all is right. There's finally hope. When your side loses, everything is wrong, right? I can't get out of bed the next morning after the, you know, my team lost, after this politician got elected, after my child sinned in this way. Right? Like, whoa, like, it's devastating when the right side loses and the wrong side wins. But we love this hero game because it makes us feel good about ourselves. It gives us an identity, it gives us hope, it gives us clear, right, wrong, be like him, be like her, don't be like him, don't be like her. Be like David, don't be like Saul. To read the text, David's just as bad as Saul, if not worse. What am I supposed to do here? Who am I supposed to be like if I'm supposed to be like one of these? Because that's the problem, the ultimate problem with that hero game is that it doesn't work. Whatever we think is the problem is too small of a villain. Our villains turn out to be far too small. Right? They can't, it can't be the reason everything is wrong with our world is this. There's no politician that bad that is the reason why everything is wrong. There's, no, there's, nothing, there's nothing in this world that can explain why everything is terrible, why everything is wrong. And those heroes, those things that we turn to, that we think, if only this happened, my life would be so much better When we get those things, they turn out to be too small of heroes, and they don't fix it, and they can't fix it. There's nothing that could save us. Luke Ferry, who's this uh, secular French philosopher, doesn't believe in Christianity. He argues against Christianity, but he, he argues that there are some fundamental truths that are too hard of truths to actually believe so that we lie to ourselves. And he said, this is one, that there's... He says, there's nothing that will ever make us happy. There's nothing that will ever save you. Life is pointless and meaningless. I mean, if you're a naturalist, it's like, that's true. 
It is true. There's nothing meaning, nothing matters in this life if there is no eternity, if there is no God. Live the life you want to live. But he says that reality is too hard of a truth to believe. So we have to fool ourselves. And so we live our lives fooling ourselves, acting like things matter, right? Like love, artwork, jobs, right? We act like it matters because we can't fully just get to the place where I could accept that everything is meaningless. It's true. We do lie to ourselves. We do have these types of lies where we live very dishonestly with ourselves and with others. This will make me happy. I know it won't, but I'm just going to, like we know on one level that's not going to do it, but you know what, I'm still going to go for it. I know my job isn't the place that's going to save me, but I'm still going to, I mean, you know, I'm going to do it. We know that there's nothing in this world that could ever satisfy us, but we don't really functionally want to believe that. So we keep trying. And we stay very, very busy lying to ourselves by doing two things. It seems like our culture has really just two options for us. We can either really build things up. You're great. They're great. Our team is great. Whatever your team is. <laughs> We're the best. You're the best. Just encourage, encourage, encourage. Puff up, puff up, puff up. You know, overlook all the downfalls, any shortcomings. In fact, you just can't see them, right? Like, I just, I have to be blind to anything wrong with my team, my candidate, my whatever. This has to be it. And so we puff up, puff up, build up, encourage, encourage, encourage. Or you go to the other extreme of just tear down, tear everything down, burn this place to the ground. You know, there's no institution that you can trust. There's no heroes left. Every hero is an anti-hero. You know, there's no such thing as goodness just this vacillating between the two things. And both positions are just really dishonest. Right? Like the reality is, whoever you're here, that side is not as good as you think. But that side is not as bad as you think either. What Scripture actually has to offer us, that we see through Samuel, that we see everywhere, is honesty. The Bible is the most honest book ever written. And we shouldn't be surprised at this complicated figure of David. <laughs> if you have been reading your Bibles, if we understand that narrative of Scripture, David's not the first complicated hero in the text. There's been a long series of would-be saviors, would-be promised childs, promised kings who have come before David, who promised deliverance, and who failed to deliver. And there's going to be a long line after him of promised kings, promised saviors, promised children who come who don't save their people. Scripture continually confronts our misguided hopes and redirects them. It keeps asking us, as we read narratives like this, it asks us, where are you putting your hope? What do you think will actually make your life better? How do you react when that source of hope gets threatened? What does it mean to have your world shaken? What does that say about your hope when the whole world collapses around you? Can you see how God is caring for you how he's, and how you are disregarding God? Do you see how God is using your life? Can you look at the result and consequences of your sin? The story of David is really a confrontation of the reader's hopes and of David's hopes. We're supposed to be evaluating Israel's hopes and actions alongside David's hopes and actions, alongside our own hopes and actions as we read these narratives. And Israel's problem, 
Right? As a reader, we read this and say, you know, Israel's problem is not the fault of their kings. Their problem isn't that they have lousy kings. That's not their problem. The fact that they even have kings is a fruit of their true problem. They don't trust God. And what's so heartbreaking through that narrative is Israel would rather have a king and a kingdom without God than have God and no king or kingdom. That's the choice that they're making continually. We would rather have a king and a kingdom without God in it than have God and have to be this small people oppressed by others constantly. We'll take that. David would rather have power, freedom, and control without God than freedom, power, and control, or without freedom, power, and control with God. Saul wasn't the problem that David was the solution to. It was their selfishness and lack of trust in God that was the problem. Those villains that we pick, anything in this world is too small of a villain to explain our problem. Our fundamental problem is not our circumstances. It's not any person or anything. (laughs) That's not my problem. My problem is me. My problem is my selfishness and my lack of trust in God for David, for Israel, and for us. And like it happened for David in 2 Samuel 12, the gospel offers us the opportunity to honestly look at our own lives. Culture doesn't offer us that honesty. Culture offers us, just tells us to keep lying. You know, cover it up, act a certain way. Everything's fine, everything's great, or everything's terrible. But the chance to truly be honest, to honestly look at our lives, to be confronted without empty boasting or spiraling off into despair. The gospel offers that opportunity to be honest with ourselves because the problem is with our sin, we don't know our I don't know if I'm being dishonest with myself. I mean, David didn't know he was necessarily, right? How do I know I'm doing things that are wrong until I've already done them? But it's being confronted by God and his grace and through the gospel that we can actually see these things. Because Christ lived a selfless life, the selfless life that we were created to live, that life of peace, that life of actually trusting God. But he rather, but he died for the selfish lives that we all do live. He made peace, reconciling our lives, our hopes, our desires. Now, we can honestly look at ourselves and our hopes and not be crushed. I am not my sin or my failures. So I can be honest about them. But I am also not my successes. I don't connect either to myself anymore. That's the hope that the gospel gives. We can honestly look at our sin. And I can honestly look at what God is doing in my life and my success. And neither one is about me. But it's about God. And it's about Christ. David is complicated. There's no question. He has conflicting desires and motivations. He has conflicting actions with real consequences. But the thing about David is he's honest. It took a while to get honest, but he's honest. The Psalms offer us a picture of honesty with God that is unlike anything else. These are not the songs of the religious. 
where everything is great, where God is just my comfort and strength and builds me up all the time. Nor are they the songs of despair that our culture likes to sing. Everything is terrible. Everything is meaningless. Just eat, drink, and be merry. Who cares about anything? The Psalms, right? They have a depth to them that is true, honest. David knows who he is. He knows what he's done. But he also knows his source of hope. So the question for us is, do we, and as readers, we're invited to find that hope, to evaluate the hopes that we do have and to see if they're misplaced. So we have to ask ourselves those same types of questions that we're asking of Israel and of David. What are our misplaced hopes? What are our fears and hurts? Have we been honest with ourselves, with God, with these things? How would we know? if we have misplaced hopes. That's the problem with our hopes. (laughs) We don't know where they are. The Bible is always inviting us to evaluate our hope and redirecting us to put our hope in Christ, the only true king, the only true source of salvation. And through the gospel, we can stop being dishonest with ourselves, with others, and with God. There's a huge increase in our culture today with therapy, going to therapy, because there's a huge desire for just a place where I could just be honest. That that desire is real, to just be honest. Christ is inviting us to be honest, to share with him, to pray with him. And if If you've never done that before, or if prayer is hard for you, or being honest with these things are hard for you, just take some baby steps and try. And that's, again, where the Psalms come into play, too. Pray through the Psalms. Use the Psalms as a template for how you should be praying, how you should be crying out to the Lord, how you can be honest with yourself. Because we all have misplaced hopes, which is why we react the way we react when things go wrong. But how do I evaluate those things? I have to bring them to the Lord continuously. 